Well, it is extremely difficult to get into medicine. Um, I know, I tried and failed. Indeed, for generations, it has required the very highest marks and more to be accepted to study medicine at university. Only the best and brightest receive that invitation. But for those who enter in, most qualify and practice as doctors. Engineering, traditionally, has not been quite so hard to get into. Not easy, but not as hard as medicine. But of those who enter in to study engineering, there is quite a high rate of attrition. Lots find it hard, too hard. Lots fail. Only the best and brightest qualify and work as engineers. Science, in contrast to both Medicine and engineering is pretty easy to get into. When I was accepted as a science student by UWA in 1985, science had one of the lowest entry mark requirements of any course at that university. I went on to do a PhD in biochemistry, and I did that because I won a scholarship that enabled me to do that. Um, I was granted that scholarship because my honors year studies were good. Not brilliant, but good. You don't have to be brilliant to do a PhD, although, of course, that that may help. Rather, in order to do a PhD, at least back in my day, you just had to be good. But for scientists, the the stumbling point, that the narrow gate, uh, comes after you've done your PhD. Then you face the hyper-competitive world of postdoctoral research fellowships and early tenure positions In research facilities, only the best and brightest actually work as research scientists. So those three disciplines, they they each have a stumbling point, they each have a bottleneck, they each have a narrow gate, if you will, but the disciplines differ markedly as to where that bottleneck is found. Uh, One day, when I was a PhD student in the biochemistry department of UWA, a young American scientist came to speak to us young postgrad students. We were all in our early to mid-twenties, and he was in his early to mid-thirties, and he had made it. Uh, He was world famous within his discipline for his research, and he held tenure uh, at a prestigious American university. And he came to tell us how to do it, how to be a successful research scientist. I'll tell you what he said a little bit later. But today, we're continuing with our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're nearing the end. Today's text begins with, Uh, Chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. 
Well, Jesus is again speaking in Proverbs and figures of speech using analogy and metaphor. The artistry of this is brilliant, of course, uh, and uh, as we consider that text, we notice that, we notice that there are four pairs. A pair of gates, a narrow gate and a wide gate. There are two different types of roads, a broad road and a narrow road. And there are two types of crowd, the many and the few. And there are two opposite destinations, life and destruction. Jesus is, of course, talking about life with God versus life without God. Life with God leading to eternal life, that is to say, heaven, or life without God, that is to say, leading to eternal life, or eternal something without God, that is to say, destruction, what we would call hell. With respect to the gates, uh, the disciples on, on the day that they heard Jesus saying this, they probably would have imagined heavy city gates set high, set into high defensive walls, the high defensive walls that surrounded towns and cities in the ancient Near East. On sunset, those gates closed, not to be opened again until dawn. And if you were still outside when they closed, that was it. You spent the night in the fields. If you knocked, they might let you in or not. But it might have helped to know someone on the door. Same with the, the heavy gate set in high defensive walls that might enclose a rich man's house within the city itself. If that gate was closed, there was no way in. You might knock on the gate and be let into the courtyard or not. In Jesus' proverb, one gate is narrow and hard to find. The other gate is wide. Uh, a wide gate is, is useful for bringing in goods and luggage and heavily laden beasts of burden. A wide gate is easy to enter, and this one is. Not demanding, you can just bring in what you like. The other gate is narrow, not useful. You may have to jettison a lot in order to squeeze through. It is not easy to find. It is easy to dismiss. After all, who wants to squeeze through a hole in the wall as a way of getting in? That's very demeaning, very embarrassing. Just with the gates, so too with the roads. The broad road has precious few boundaries. All kinds of vehicles might be found on it. It is a multi-lane highway, and you can weave and swerve all you like. But the narrow way has tight and restrictive boundaries. The slightest course deviation, you're off. A variation either to the left or to the right, and you're simply just no longer on the road at all. You might have, have, have struggled even finding it again. Do the disciples know what Jesus is talking about? Of course they do, because the Old Testament has furnished them with a rich heritage of thoughts and imagery relating precisely to these things. 
to, to those on the outside, to, to the seeker or to the one who's yet to be informed, it looks like life has, it looks like life has a bewildering variety of options with respect to philosophies and religions and isms, how to make sense of life, how to live it, which one is right. So many options. But the Old Testament has always insisted that actually there are only two choices. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. The way of life or the way of death. The way of salvation or the way of destruction. The the way of the wicked is indeed amazingly diverse. So many different religions, each nation having... uh, its own different deities, different gods and goddesses, and places like Athens having an equally diverse and rich selection of competing philosophies. But it's all rubbish. It's all satanic. The blind are leading the blind. They don't know. They haven't heard. They haven't met the living God. They haven't met the God of the Bible. He knows, and he knows the way, because he's made it. And freedom is only to be found, life is only to be found in living life for him, his way, with him. Jesus, in this proverb, is now claiming that authority and that personhood. He is speaking as God, in other words. Jesus is equating his teaching with God's teaching, his way with God's way, he is the gate. And the disciples would have already understood that Jesus was the gate, that obedience to Jesus as king is the entry point into the kingdom of heaven, that he is the way in, the saving presence. To be with Jesus is to be with God, his presence, protection, and provision. Well, the rest of the New Testament unpacks this. Jesus himself says twice in John chapter 10, I am the gate. Jesus is the gate. So then, the small gate and the narrow way both refer to Jesus and the obedience that springs from the conviction that he is king. As the author of the book of Hebrews says, referring to Jesus, son though he was, He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The the narrow way, the highway of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah called it, will be a narrow way. It is a narrow way. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about it. Isaiah 35. Jesus said, I am the way. And his Sermon on the Mount shows us what that way looks like. Much must be jettisoned to pass through that gate. Oh, it's narrow. Oh, it's tight. You've got to jettison all kinds of things. You've got to jettison pride, arrogance, hateful anger, selfishness and self-centeredness. And there will be constant temptations to leave, even if only by slight deviation, that narrow path. The temptations of money, the temptations of anger, 
the temptations of self-righteous indignation, the temptations of unrestricted sexual freedom, the temptation to be unfaithful or less faithful in relationships, etc., etc., etc. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a narrow gate and it's a narrow path. Well, um, one of the things that the figure of speech teaches is that most people are going to hell, a place of eternal conscious torment that Jesus routinely referred to as fire. The vast majority of humanity insanely rushes towards this destination. It is helpful, I think, to look at a place in Luke's gospel where Jesus uses similar words. It is helpful because in that context, Jesus uses similar words in response to a a direct question. He doesn't actually answer the questioner directly, but he does tell the inquirer what he needs to know. I'm reading from Luke 13, beginning at verse 22. Then Jesus went through towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to, not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Jesus continued, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. One of the things that the Bible assumes and teaches explicitly at various points is that God, what God is doing is that God is graciously saving a remnant. That is to say, God is graciously saving a tiny fraction of humanity. This is gracious because all of humanity has rebelled against him. We are all implicated in that rebellion. The Bible also affirms that this tiny fraction will, in the final analysis, actually be a vast, uncountable number representing every tribe, language, nation, and people group. But that crowd will be, nevertheless, a remnant, a small fraction of all human beings who ever lived. We are being exhorted to make sure that we are in that remnant. That some will be saved, that is God's grace, that is God's choice. That most will be condemned, that's not God's choice, that's humanity's choice. The stubborn, willful refusal to bow the knee to to King Jesus and to serve him. 
It is uh, continued disobedience in response to grace. So then, in view of these things, Jesus' exhortation, enter through the narrow gate. Jesus and the obedience that comes from the conviction that he is king, that is the gate, that is the way, that is the path. Well, the theme of obedience to Jesus as king continues to the end of the chapter. Let's read uh, now verses uh, 15 to 20. Jesus uh, taught. Jesus continues, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The uh, Old Testament meaning of the word uh, prophet, uh, loosely, a prophet is someone who speaks on God's behalf. And in the ancient world in general, the word prophet actually simply meant expert. You can have, therefore, in everyday speech of that day, you can have, say, for example, a prophet of gardening simply means an acknowledged expert in gardening. Well, the Old Testament has a lot to say about false prophets. For centuries, false prophets outnumbered real prophets, possibly a hundred to one. False prophets were people who essentially spoke in the name of the Lord, but just told their audience, whether that audience was the king and his court or the people in the marketplace, they just told the audience whatever it was that the audience wanted to hear. Their motivations were simple enough, The image of wolves in sheep's clothing comes loosely from the book of Ezekiel, chapters 34 to 36, wherein God speaks against the leaders of the nation of Israel, those sheep who ought to be shepherds, kings, princes, prophets, and priests. They ought to be leaders, but instead what they're doing is they are fleecing the flock. In other words, they don't look after the people of God, but rather they exploit them and grow rich by oppressing them. Religion has actually always been a good way of getting rich if you know how to go about it. The religious sphere has always also irresistibly attracted people who, to put it bluntly, crave being worshipped. People who must have followers. They crave being in authority and they get just one heck of a kick out of being obeyed. Today, we might talk in terms of personality disorders and politely suggest that they try American politics. But the internet now provides many, many opportunities. Um, uh, Indeed, maybe more opportunities for the narcissist than the church does. But the religious sphere has, has always attracted false prophets. Jesus warns his disciples, and now he warns us against false prophets, Because the threat is real and the threat is commonplace. False prophets, that is to say, any who claim to speak or teach or lead on behalf of God or in his name, continue to be a common yet severe danger. And they are dangerous and deceptive. They come dressed as sheep, 
looking like God's people, talking the talk. Yet they are wolves, an enemy against which a flock of sheep is completely defenseless, except that there is a shepherd brave enough to stand in the way. Well, uh, the metaphor changes, doesn't it? The metaphor changes from, from a pastoralist image of, 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 of sheep and wolves to a horticulturalist image moving from meadow to um, orchard or vineyard because there is a way to recognize these wolves dressed as sheep. You recognize them by their fruit as though trees. Verses 16 to 20 say the same thing forming something uh, that's called an inclusio, a frame that helps us to interpret what's inside. Verses 16 and 20 say the same thing, by their fruit you will recognize them. So that's important. By their fruit you will recognize them. The extended explanation about good fruit from good trees versus bad fruit from bad trees, also uses language found in various places in the Old Testament, especially the book of Isaiah, but not only there. Indeed, from Genesis chapter 1 onwards, God has created humanity in order that human beings might be fruitful for him, that they might bear fruit for him. When the New Testament talks about the fruit of Christian leaders, it generally has in mind three things. Firstly, a godly character, that the person is Christ-like, that they are an imitator of Christ, of Jesus. Secondly, a godly message, that the person teaches the message of Christ as transmitted through the apostles and as preserved in the Bible. Firstly, a godly character. Secondly, a godly message. Thirdly, a godly outcome. That there is evidence that the Holy Spirit is blessing their way of life and blessing their ministry in a way that is is appropriate to that ministry. So, So that's how generally we might recognize the fruit of Christian leaders. But within the context of the Sermon on the Mount... The the fruit of Christian leaders must be defined more specifically as obedience to the Sermon on the Mount itself. Jesus is saying, in effect, watch for disobedience. Do not obey leaders who do not obey me. Do not obey leaders who are not obeying the Sermon on the Mount. Leadership and discipleship are ultimately a matter of imitation. We learn by copying, and the Bible expects leaders to be examples, examples worthy of imitation. So why would you listen to some guy preaching on the Sermon of the Mount if he or she wasn't themselves obeying it, living it? We should hold that thought in mind for next week when we look at a passage that begins with Jesus saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then thereafter we'll see the banishment of many who on that day said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out many demons and in your name perform many miracles. But we should also consider, when thinking about the fruit of Christian leadership, we should also consider that in calling us to examine fruit, Jesus is calling us, indeed, to make a judgment 
but not calling us to make a hasty judgment. Never be quick to call someone fool, that is to say a, a moros, a moron, someone who doesn't belong to God's people. Some trees take years to bear fruit. And even with a healthy tree, there is a season for fruit, a season that follows the season of budding, of blossoming, of flowering, of flowering, of germination, of ripening, and then of harvest. It is appropriate to consider the lessons of this same sermon, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, and to avoid, in our judging, judgmentalism. Yet, and nevertheless, we are to exercise judgment judiciously in the face of the expectation of a global judgment. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, the uh, 30-something scientist, um, the American scientist who came to talk to us PhD students about how to make it in science, he gave us actually quite a simple message. His message was this. He said, every morning when you get up, you have to, to decide to be a scientist. Because if you don't, then one morning you'll wake up and you won't be. You won't be a scientist. And actually, as he unpacked that, it became clear that what he meant was that our only hope for success in the hyper-competitive world of postdocs and early tenure positions, in that world of scientific research, your one and only hope was to, to, was to uh, make science your first and only thing in your life. No hobbies, no relationships, no distractions, just 24-7 science. Work, 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 work. A friend of mine who, who did, in fact, go on to do a postdoc at Harvard University uh, told me that they were advised by their supervisors that if they couldn't hack the pressure of research science, they should choose something less stressful, like Wall Street. Well, the American guy, uh, he, he wasn't actually talking about hard work. He wasn't talking about commitment. He wasn't talking about dedication. Really, what he was saying was idolatrous. Science, he was saying, would suffer no competitors for her affection. Worship at her altar and worship her alone. That really was his message. And he was advocating, of course, a view of science that in certain areas is commonplace, that science is the great shining light of a new age, and that all research scientists are priests and priestesses of this great new light, a light shining in the darkness. And for some of us on that day, his message for some of, of us, that message was exciting. They heard what they wanted to hear. It made them feel good. But I think actually for most of us, we were actually pretty appalled. Instinctively, we got that to live for science and only science was actually an awful prospect. We hoped that we might have some kind of life outside of working hours too. Yet, Jesus here in the sermon is talking in a way that's very similar to that young American scientist. Talking in a way that he talks consistently through all of the Gospels. 
There are only two choices, Jesus says. Live for Jesus and only for Jesus. Jesus first and only. Or destruction. Your choice. And every morning when you get up, you have to decide to follow Jesus. You have to decide and remember that you are a Christian. You have to keep on deciding to walk that walk, the narrow path, the tight-fitting gate. Because if you don't, you'll wake up one morning and you're not. That idea, the idea that there is only really a choice between two, Jesus and everything else, is anathema to the unregenerate mind. It's hideous, it's evil to those on the outside. No, 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 they say. No, there is a vast mega market of religions, ideas, philosophies, and isms to choose from. I can mix and match. I can grab a selection. I can take what works for me. But for those who are being saved, we know it's all, it's all rubbish. Jesus and Jesus alone is perfect freedom. And everything else is slavery. After all, he is the good shepherd, the one who didn't run away, the one who gave his life for the sheep in order that they might have life and life in its fullness. To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be glory and honor forever and ever. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.